Welcome to Classic Paranormal, where we bring you true stories of the weird, strange, and otherworldly from works of literature from the past that time forgot. Don't forget to hit the share button to help promote this podcast. In this fourth episode of the series, you'll be entertained by Hamlin Garland's 40 Years of Psychic Research, first published in 1936. Chapter 10. Editor Cosgrave and Daniel Peters. The publication of The Tyranny of the Dark relieved the pressure of the psychic material in my head, and I returned to my work as novelist of the Mountain West. Nevertheless, I occasionally met with those interested in the occult and continued my reading of magazines devoted to the subject. One of my New York friends with whom I lunched now and again at the club was John O'Hara Cosgrave, the editor of Everybody's Magazine, which was one of the most widely read periodicals of the day. Notwithstanding his expert editorship of a popular periodical, Cosgrave was deeply interested in certain phases of Oriental thought. He was essentially a mystic, but found interest in my scientific approach to spiritualism. One night, in the autumn of 1907, I was a guest at a literary dinner in his home, and during dinner someone spoke of my book, The Tyranny of the Dark, and wished to know how much scientific observation it contained. My reply led to a general discussion of the hidden world about us, and for more than an hour I described my experiments with Mrs. Smiley, Mrs. Hartley, and other professional mediums. And all the while, Cosgrave listened gravely, saying little but very plainly absorbed by the turn which the talk had taken. At the close of the dinner, he said to me in his low, pleasant Irish voice, What other subject could arouse and hold the interest of a group of varied personalities as this is done tonight? While you were talking, I was asking myself, would not an article by this man Garland interest my readers as it has interested my guests? Presented as you have presented it tonight, I believe it would be a successful feature. Will you consider writing one or two articles for me? I shall be glad to do so, but I should like to put my experiments and observations into the form of an after-dinner discussion. Something like that we have just ended. That's an idea. I am certain that such an informal expression of the subject would interest. Why not write out a sample article and let me see it? Stimulated by his enthusiasm, I immediately set to work on a manuscript which pictured a group of people somewhat similar to his dinner party, in which scoffers, believers, scientific observers, and critics heckled me on the statements which I had put into the tyranny of the dark. This article, which I turned in a few days later, was read and approved not only by Cosgrave, but by his assistant editors Gilman Hall and George Barbaker, and I was commissioned to go on with at least two more, a commission which up to this time no American magazine of general literature had dared to grant. It was in truth a perilous adventure, for it not only set me to work reading my files and digging up my notebooks, it led me to make new experiments in order to bring my articles up to date. I said to Cosgrave, I am going to set aside all my other literary work and concentrate on this serial. I shall resume my search for new phenomena at once. He took a personal interest in my plans and not only furnished me the latest authoritative books on the subject, but promised to let me know the name of any reliable medium he might discover. The entire editorial staff became for the first time psychical students. It was a most interesting and delightful excursion into new territory for them. One day in Cosgrave's office on Union Square he said to me, a friend of mine, Dr. Turner, has become interested in a young law clerk who was an amazing medium. The doctor wants us to dine with him and afterward witness a performance of the psychic's stunts. His name is Daniel Peters, and Dr. Turner would like our aid in testing his powers. In this way it happened that a few days later I found myself in Dr. Turner's house, a handsome residence on one of the cross streets which used to have high social significance. The dinner party included three practicing physicians and their wives and a musician named Potter, a lively critical group. During the dinner, the question of male mediums came up, and I admitted that I had met but few in my experience thus far. Cosgrave asked for an explanation of this. In reply, I said substantially this, It is true that there are very few men who are willing to give the time and temper to developing this power. Men are more active in habit and mind and body, 
and far less disposed to make mediumship a means to maintain communication with the dead. In most cases, mediums claim to have gone through a long and tedious training in the effort to acquire clairvoyance, clairaudience, independent voices, and independent writing. Materialization is a later and still more exhausting phase. Men who have anything to do decline to go through this training. In all my experience so far, I have had but three men who were able and willing to demonstrate any phase of psychic power. My theory is that we all have this power in some degree, but its liberation appears to be outside the will. Women are readier to assume this passive attitude. They are more patient during long hours of sitting in the dark. It is easier for them to sit regularly. They have less demand upon their time. They are more emotional, more inclined to make a religion of their revelations. The proportion of men to women in the business of mediumship is not more than one to fifty, so far as my experience goes. It may be that it is one to a thousand. In truth, half the women I talk with on this subject have had what they call strange experiences. It is for this reason that I approach with a special interest our sitting with the young man Dr. Turner has provided. I hope he will lend his powers to a scientific investigation. At a quarter to eight, the psychic was announced, and at the request of our host, I went out to meet and detain him in the library while a room was being prepared for the seance. Peters was a small, pale young man with extraordinarily brilliant eyes. He was thin and bloodless, weighing, as he confessed, only a little over a hundred pounds, a mere wisp of a man. I am lately out of law school, he explained, and I am one of the many legal assistants in the offices of a big corporation down on Wall Street. My superiors do not know that I am a medium, and I ask you not to use my name in print. They might fire me if they know what I'm doing. He was plainly very tense, and as he walked to and fro, he talked, talked incessantly. His manner was decidedly belligerent and his tone dogmatic. He knew. That he needed careful handling was evident, and I requested his story. He said, I have been aware of my power for about four years. My grandfather and a friend named Evans are the ones who most frequently come to me. I have no guides. I don't believe in guides, he added, rather contemptuously. I am not a professional medium. I am a lawyer. Dr. Turner has promised me a fee, but I usually make no charge, although an evening sitting among strangers takes a lot out of me. I'm not much good the next day. I did not search his pockets, but I looked him over carefully and saw no place in which apparatus of any bulk could be hidden. He was wearing a lightweight short coat, dark trousers, and a knitted waistcoat. I particularly noted the waistcoat for its odd pattern. Nothing of any weight was in his pockets. Of that I made sure and he carried nothing in his hands as we moved toward the dining room. The place for the sitting was not especially suitable. It was a reception hall midway between the doctor's office and the dining room, and not only was too large, but had more the character of a passageway than a room. Peter sensed this incongruity at once and expressed his discontent with it, but accepted the situation. He arranged our chairs around a small table which had been placed in the center of the hall and named Dr. Turner as the sitter on his left and placed Mrs. Turner in the chair on his right. This put me out of close contact with him. Cosgrave was not pleased with this, but made no objection. I regarded it all as preliminary. On the table were pencils and a pad of writing paper. After we had taken our seats, the psychic, who was in full control of the circle, curtly ordered us to clasp hands. He then linked his little fingers with the little fingers of Dr. and Mrs. Turner and drew their hands down upon his knees. The lights were then turned out, and the room became almost perfectly dark but in a few moments, pale patches of light appeared around the windows. For half an hour, we listened while the doctor asked Peter shrewd questions concerning his muscular reactions and his mental state during a sitting. His replies were intelligent, keenly so, and some of his remarks were worthy of notice. I seem to leave my body, he said. When I think toward a person, I am there, all around him, inside of him at times. 
In expansion of this idea, I then asked, Are you conscious of your inert body, the body you have left behind? No, he replied. I look back at it and I am conscious of being in a different place, but I am not conscious of being in two places at once. In explanation, I added, I asked that question because several mediums have told me that they sometimes see themselves entering a room or lying on a couch, but that they are never conscious of being both the man observing and the man entering. Consciousness is always in one place, as you say, never in two places at the same time. Do seances like this affect your health unfavorably? No, they weary me, but no more than a prolonged period of study would do. I am very fond of chess, and I find that I do not play as well the next day after a sitting. The only signs of strain at the time are the tremors which come into my arms and legs. At this point, the first sign of psychic power was given, a steady tapping on Mrs. Turner's chair. A few moments later, this tapping passed to the table. This is the signal of my friend Evans, Peters announced. From this point on, I began to direct the sitting, addressing Evans as a distinct personality. Will you write for us, I asked. He answered by tapping out a vigorous yes. Dr. Turner reported a violent and continuous tremor in the psychic's left arm. His right is also trembling, said Mrs. Turner. Shortly after this, the pencils and the pad on the table could be heard moving. A few moments later, the sound of sheets being torn from the pad indicated that two hands were at work. One of these sheets was flourished in the air close to my face, more than two yards from the psychic, while Dr. and Mrs. Turner reported firm control of his hands. And a moment later, Dr. Turner called out. A hand is clutching my arm. Fingers are now tapping on my shirt front. There are two hands at work around my neck. They are taking off my tie. Be sure of your control, I warned. It is unchanged, Turner replied. My little finger is linked with his. Mrs. Turner now exclaimed, The hands are now putting the collar around my neck. I plainly feel two hands. They are putting the doctor's tie around the collar. That cuts out the theory of hypnotism. Please leave the collar and tie where they are. Shortly after this, the man seated next to Turner spoke. I feel a strong pressure on my arm as if someone were leaning on it. Turner again spoke. Hands have unbuttoned my shirt front. They are stuffing pencils through the opening. Others reported hands patting them, but I felt nothing. I pretended to complain of this. Is there no one here for me? There is someone here for you, the psychic replied. Write your name, I urged, and immediately thereafter I heard the sound of writing. A sheet of paper was then torn off the pad and thrown across the table into my lap. A moment later, something hard struck the table in front of me with a crackle. What is this? I asked. Those are my cuffs, said Peters. They often remove my cuffs. They are the old-fashioned, starch-removable kind. This suggested one of Zollner's experiments, and in a spirit of banter I said to the invisible one, Evans, remove Dr. Turner's vest. If you can do that while the psychic's hands are held, it will parallel some of Alfred Russell Wallace's tests. Turner reported that the hands which had been at work around him had left him, and Peters immediately called out, They're working on me. They're taking my vest off. Please see that every hand is clasped. With this warning, we tightened our chain of hands, and in less than a minute, something soft fell across my knee. I announced this. I think it's the psychic's vest, but don't break the chain of hands. If this garment which I feel on my knee is Peters's vest, we have a phenomenon quite as marvelous as any of Zollner's. Dr. Turner then said, his left little finger is still linked with mine. It has not been free for an instant. Mrs. Turner added, there has been no movement in his right arm. His hand trembled, but it did not move from mine. If the reader thinks it is an easy trick to take off his coat while his hands are being held and while he is sitting between two alert people, let him try it. It is a complicated process, even when one is free to use both arms. It is practically impossible to remove one's coat with one hand held. A man's torso writhes violently, his arms flail about, 
His hands grasped the collar of his coat. One arm must go behind him. He cannot shrug himself out of his sleeves. Such movements could not take place without detection. In this case, Peters would have been forced to free both hands three times. Once to remove his coat, a second time to remove his vest, and a third time to put his coat on. The theory of the doubter is that the trickster gradually brings the hands of his control together and induces them to hold each other's fingers while his own hands are freed for other purposes. Assuming that he did this, the clasped hands of the turners would still be a barrier across his knees and they would instantly feel the motions of his body while writhing out of his coat. Furthermore, linking of their own little fingers would naturally cause them to lean still closer to the shoulders of the psychic. We are to suppose also that Dr. Turner could not tell the difference between the little finger of the psychic and the little finger of his wife. As all this happened in the dark, we now desired something else which could not be laid to hypnotic influence. I said, I wish the invisible would lift the table out of the circle and deposit it on the floor. That would be evidence that we are not hypnotized. The psychic consented. They will do this, but every hand must be held firmly, and no one must move. Already now, silence, don't stir. With all hands clasped, we sat in deep silence, waiting. Turner announced an increase in the convulsive tremor of the psychic's limbs, but his hands are rigidly held. We could all hear the sound of the psychic's deep breathing as he concentrated all his willpower in this supreme effort. Just as he predicted the removal of Dr. Turner's tie and promised the removal of his own vest, so now he commanded the table to rise. We heard it rock. He called out, it is rising. Silence. And as we listened, we heard it drop softly to the floor outside the circle of our clasped hands. Mrs. Turner said, it went right over my shoulder. I had to lean away to avoid it. It is standing just back of me. That this amazing stunt, similar to those which have so often been photographed by European investigators, came at Peter's command was evident. I granted its supernormal character, but Peter's willed its movement. He could not free his hands and rise from his place to lift it, but his commands, his warnings to keep silence, his deep breathing, and the convulsive tremor in his hands, conditions which the Turners from time to time reported, indicated that in some unexplained way he was the willful engine of this movement. That we were not hypnotized was proven by the solid fact that the table was veritably outside the circle when the lights were lit, and that Dr. Turner's collar was about Mrs. Turner's neck. We returned the table to its former position and again turned out the lights. The psychic then said, If anyone in the circle will think of a signature, I will put it on the pad in the center of the table. He did not say, The spirits will put it on the pad. He said, I will put it on the pad. Obviously, he regarded this as another action wholly under his control. Dr. Turner spoke. I'm thinking of a signature. Is it outlined in your mind? Yes, I see it clearly. Almost immediately, the sound of writing on the paper in the center of the table could be heard. Peters then asked, Is it written? As I listened, I heard the sheet being torn off. They are folding it, I said. Raps indicated the completion of the task. On turning up the lights, Dr. Turner found a name written on the pad. It is my brother's signature, he said, exactly as he was accustomed to write it. The psychic said that he could produce in this way the signature of anyone. He did not say that he could distinguish the signatures of a dead man, but left us to infer that he could. The only thing necessary is to have a clear picture of it in a living brain. A surprise was awaiting me. On the sheet of paper which had been ripped off the pad and thrown over the table to me, I found the name Taft written in the peculiar up-and-down script of my wife's father, Professor Taft. I had not been thinking of him. I had not attempted to visualize his signature and no one in the circle knew was writing or that he was related to me. There was something inexplicable in this fact. As for the vest which had been thrown into my lap, it was plainly the one Peters had been wearing when we sat down, and he was now without a vest. If we were to suppose that he took it off before his hands were controlled, 
It must be said that at the moment it was thrown to me, his hands were in the grip of Dr. and Mrs. Turner. Furthermore, I suggested the feet. We all examined the vest closely. It was not a trick garment. It had no seams up the back or sides. It was a plain, soft, knitted vest. His cuffs, which had been taken off before the vest, were on my side of the table also. Assume that here was a trick. How shall we explain the lifting of the table over our heads? He could not have raised this table, even with both hands free. But his hands were not free. At the very moment of the table's flight, Dr. Turner and Mrs. Turner both said, We gripped this psychic with a special determination to prevent movement. His knees trembled, but his hands did not move. Nevertheless, I had the feeling that all these baffling phenomena somehow came from Peter's organism, reinforced by a force to which all of the sitters contributed. Peter's now rose, saying, Conditions are so favorable I shall try to produce some materializations. Taking his chair in his hands, he withdrew into the hall which led to the closed door of the dining room, and at his request we all took seats in a half-circle facing the portiere behind which he had disappeared. The room was then darkened as before. Almost immediately, two or three lights like the twisting flames of candles, singular, glowing yet not radiant, violet in color, developed high up along the top of the portieres and drifted slowly across, rising toward the ceiling, where they vanished. These were followed by a broad glowing mass of what looked like a white-hot axe blade. It was irregular in shape and about six inches wide. This reminded me of Crooks's report of a similar glowing substance which he declared he had held in his hands. As this disappeared, a wild whoop startled us. It was as if a roguish boy had opened a door, shouted a word, and slammed the door after him. This ended the sitting. After the psychic had left the house, we fell to a discussion of the puzzling aspects of this performance, for that is what it seemed to be. To me, it was less of a novelty than to most of the others, but it presented some entirely new phases. The reader will recall that I had dictated words to be written under glass and on closed slates, and that I had many times witnessed the levitation of objects, some of them in the light, but never had I shared in a sitting wherein a man's vest was removed while both his hands were rigidly controlled. I am certain that two hands were operating when my collar and tie were being removed, Turner declared. To me, I replied, the reproduction of the handwriting of my wife's father, Professor Taft, is the most puzzling of all. Taft was a professor of geology. He hated the word mystery. He was intolerant of all spiritualistic discussion. Why should his name be written and tossed to me? I was not thinking of him. He and I were not especially sympathetic. Why should his name come rather than that of my own father? The Turners, deeply impressed with the events of the evening, said to me in parting, We shall ask this man to come again. And when we do, we want you to meet him at the door, search him, and afterwards take charge of the sitting. We shall have fewer people, and you can use your own methods of control. Make it as decisive as possible. With this understanding, Cosgrave and I went away together. It was an extraordinary performance at Cosgrave. It was indeed, I replied. But I shall see that Peters' hands are controlled by something inorganic next time. There is virtue in tape and dental floss. Chapter 11 More About Peters Peters interested me. I gave a great deal of thought to his performance, which from any point of view was astonishing. And when Dr. Turner invited me to another seance and requested me to take full charge of proceedings, I was quick to accept. And so it happened that I again met our young psychic in the reception room of the Turner home, prepared to search him before we entered the sitting room. He was less belligerent than at our previous sitting. He was indeed friendly in tone and submitted to my search of his clothing with serenity. He had nothing in his pockets but his handkerchief, a few coins, and his watch. And as I ran my hands over his body, I was painfully impressed by his emaciation. He was almost a skeleton. 
He bore himself with dignity, however, and his replies indicated a very genuine pride in his singular endowment. As he preceded me into the seance room, I made certain that he carried nothing in his hands, and I made certain that nothing bulky was in his pockets. After placing him in an armchair on the same side of the same table as before, I said, Dr. Tucker wishes me to be in control tonight, and I would like to employ dental floss as a manacle. Employ anything you like, he retorted. Taking out my spool of floss, I tied his right wrist to the arm of the chair and also to the left wrist of the young woman who had been given a seat at his right. I did the same with his left wrist, which I was to control. His hands had some play in these bonds, but as they were tied to the chair and to me and to my assistant, I felt sure that he could not move objects at a distance. In addition, I hooked the little finger of my right hand with the little finger of his left hand. Almost immediately after the lights were turned out, he was seized with a convulsive shiver which shook his whole body, but his hand did not move. Soon, a faint, bluish, smoke-like cloud developed in front of his chest just below his chin, filling the space between the arms of his chair. Out of this cloud, a hand darted swift as light and clasped my left wrist firmly, but for an instant only. It was a right hand. A moment later, this hand came again and ruffled the sleeve of my coat as if to uncover my cuff as a place on which to write a message. I asked the reader to observe that to do this normally, the psychic would have been forced not only to break the link of his little finger with that of the alert young woman on his right, but to escape the bond of dental floss and reach entirely across my body to my left wrist. To do this without breaking the thread was impossible. There was not two inches of play in the thread, and no strain was reported by the girl whose wrist was tied to his. As if to confound me, the spectral hand then darted out to the center of the table and took up the pad. I could see it at this moment plainly outlined. It possessed apparently only three digits. His left hand in my control trembled, but did not otherwise move. At this point, he said, I am thirsty. We had placed on the table a glass of water, but before I could decide to loose my hold and feel for the glass, the spectral hand darted out, seized the goblet, lifted it, and brought it to the psychic's lips. I could see the fingers clasping it, and the arm, which was like a dim ray of light, seemed to go out from his bosom. The hand held the glass while the psychic drank. By bending his head, he was able to touch his lips to the glass, which was gently tipped for him. All this was not imagination on my part, for the glass moved and the psychic drank a part of the contents. Furthermore, writing afterward appeared a full yard from the psychic's hands and remained in evidence. It was not imaginary. Sometimes the phantasmal arm appeared black, sometimes white, but always it appeared to be a right hand. Although Miss Brown constantly reported no movement in the hand she held and the dental floss remained faithful to its task. As the glass rose to the psychic's lips, I plainly perceived the arm. It appeared to be clothed in gray vapor and the hand showed only three fingers. But when it grasped my wrist, it was full-fashioned and vigorous. I felt it as distinctly as if it had been a normal hand, and yet the young woman who controlled his hand and to whose wrist he was linked testified that he had not moved. As dental floss is very fine, very strong, and cannot be untied even in the light, I regarded it as superior to handcuffs or rubber cord as a means of control. The psychic could move his wrists only an inch at most, and to reach and clasp my left wrist without breaking that filament meant a sweep of nearly a yard. If there is any virtue in a silk thread, his hand did not move. True, I may have imagined the hand clasp, but the water in the glass was diminished. That was not imagined. The sitting was less startling than before, but the control was rigid and the phenomena wholly inexplicable. The writing on the pad in the middle of the table, the lifting of the glass of water, and the clasp of that spectral hand upon my wrist were the outstanding phenomena, and are so noted in my diary. Other events which were repetitions I did not record. According to an entry in my diary a month later, I made a third test of this amazing young man. I quote, Determined to increase my control, I drew the sleeves of his coat tight round his wrists and nailed them to the chair arm with long upholstery tacks. 
In addition to this, I used again the dental floss, and yet, while Dr. Turner himself held one hand and I the other, spectral arms developed before the psychic's breast, writing appeared on a pad in the middle of the table, and as a climax, the psychic's undershirt was removed and tossed across the table. Not much happened, but what did happen was under rigid test conditions. This brief but authentic note, made immediately after my return to my hotel, covers a most astounding performance, one which requires extended comment. Again, for the third time, I had met Peters in the hall and searched him to see that he carried nothing bulky to the seance room. Determined to make it absolutely impossible for him to lift his arms one inch from the chair, I had brought the cuffs of his coat tight about his wrists and had driven down through the double fabric too long upholstery nails. In addition, I had again used the dental floss, and as a further control, Dr. Turner and I had linked our fingers with his. And yet, according to my report written immediately afterward, his undershirt had been tossed across the table. Assume that he had this garment concealed in a pocket. How could he draw it out and toss it across the table? He could not draw those tacks and reset them. To untie that thread and retie it with my control of his hands was normally impossible. On the other hand, consider what is involved in the alternative. He must not only pull those tacks, free his fingers from our control, but rise in his seat, remove his coat, his vest, his white shirt, and then draw his undershirt off over his head. Having done all this, he must replace his shirt, button it, put on his collar and tie, resume his coat, renail his sleeve to his chair, reinsert his wrists in the floss, and restore his fingers to our grip, all in a few seconds' time. How was it done, you ask? I don't know. I can only report the facts. Some would say that it was due to the power which the East Indian jugglers use in their performances. That it was directed by Peters himself, I am quite certain. I cannot conceive that it was done with any religious or philosophical intent. We were asking for astonishing physical phenomena, and Evans gave them to us. I submit that on its lowest terms, this performance is amazing. I repeat the problem. A frail little man comes into a strange house, is searched by an investigator of much experience. His sleeves are nailed to the arms of his chair, and his hands are held in close grip by two determined men. And yet, despite all these precautions, these preventative measures, this man duplicates signatures which he has never seen, develops a powerful supernumerary hand which starts about like a serpent's tongue, and finally causes his undershirt to be tossed across the table. I cannot say that he was wearing this undershirt when I bound his hands, but that he was without an undershirt at the close of the sitting I can testify, for I went with him to the library and saw him stripped to his bare torso and put the garment on over his head. While he was resuming his clothes, he said to me, I sit every Sunday evening for my own family. Come down and see what happens. No one else but my wife and mother will be present. This I promised to do. At the moment, I thought this performance unique, but later I found in an essay by Alfred Russell Wallace the description of a precisely similar trick. During a test seance with Davenport and Fay, two famous mediums of the 70s, a coat was taken from one of the bound men and put upon another man also bound. Furthermore, the coat was photographed in flight. As in my test, the motive of their case was apparently to puzzle the investigators by doing the impossible. Just as with Zollner, the psychic astounded the investigator by linking solid rubber rings with steel handcuffs. Such feats of magic have only an indirect bearing on the spirit hypotheses, but they may be taken as an evidence of the fourth dimension. In accepting Peters' invitation to join his Sunday evening family circle, I had no anticipation of anything more than the usual dark sitting in which devoted believers hold intercourse with their dead. I did hope, however, for a candid talk with Peters during which I might learn more of his singular power. He met me at the station, and as we walked up the leafy street of a commonplace little village, we discussed his mediumship quite frankly. He admitted that it was a physical strain. I find my office work difficult the day after a sitting. That is why I seldom sit for strangers. 
My Monday forenoons are always draggy, but my wife regards these Sunday circles as a kind of religious ceremony and I hate to disappoint her and her family. His home was a small apartment in the second story of a detached frame house, and as the night was warm, the windows were all open. The group consisted of Mrs. Peters, her daughter, a girl of 12, her mother, and a young Pole, a personal friend of the psychic. The front bedroom, an alcove which led from this room, had a window but no door. Peters insisted on my searching this room. This I did, but found nothing to suspect. The window was open and looked down upon the sidewalk from ten feet below. Two oil lamps, one at the piano and the other on a small table, furnished the light. After the pole, the old woman and I had taken seats in a row against the wall and Mrs. Peters went to the piano. The little girl reclined on a bench by the open window. She was in full view all the time. Placing a chair in the alcove, Peters drew the portieres of the alcove, shutting himself behind them. Mrs. Peters then blew out one of the lamps and turned the other low. I could see her dimly as she began softly to play the piano. But as it was all in the nature of a family ceremony and not in any sense a test seance, I made no objection to the absence of control. I was merely a visitor and expected nothing important. After a few moments of silence, I observed a cloud of glowing vapor slowly forming on the floor just in front of the portieres. It resembled, as it rose, a cone of fire-lit steam like that which rolls from a locomotive smokestack on a winter morning. It expanded as it slowly rose, and at last out of it the dim figure of a man emerged. He spoke in a foreign tongue, and I observed that his voice resembled that of the psychic. The pole who sat beside me on the couch called out, It is my brother. Then to Mrs. Peters he said, Play the Polish national hymn. She complied, and as the hymn swelled out, the pole began to sing, if a husky tuneless moan can be called singing. It was evident that he had no sense of pitch, and when the phantom joined in the chant, I noted that his voice exhibited precisely the same lack of tune. He too was unmusical. It was as if the spirit were a duplication of the pole, and I said to myself, the pole is singing with his double. The spiritualist would say he was singing with his reincarnate brother, and perhaps he was. This form then faded out, and another, supposedly a materialization of Evans, the psychic's guide, took his place. This dimly seen figure appeared enveloped in a cloud of vapor, but his voice was distinct. At his invitation, I went forward to shake hands with him. He seemed taller than the psychic, but his manner of speech was distinctly similar to that of Peter's. I could not see his face. The hand he offered me was draped in an exceedingly fine, faintly shining material, cobwebby in texture, which appeared to melt away between my fingers and his. The hand was narrow and pointed. I felt its bones for a moment. When I released it, the figure vanished like a bubble. It made no sound when it appeared, and none as it disappeared. One instant it was there, the next it was not. The psychic then called from the alcove, more light. Mrs. Peters then turned up the wick of the oil lamp till I could see all the persons and all the furniture in the room, and when a few minutes later the psychic reappeared in front of the portieres, I could see him plainly, even to the color of his necktie. In fact, the light in the room was quite as strong as the usual lighting of a cottage, I could follow every movement he made, and I located Mrs. Peters and the little girl. The pole and the old lady were seated beside me. Peters appeared distraught. His face was white, and his hair rumpled. Taking a position about six feet from the center of the portieres, he called sharply, Come out. His voice was commanding in tone, like that of an officer addressing a subordinate. Suddenly, silently, and apparently without displacing the folds of the curtain, the form of a man appeared outside the portieres and stood at attention like a soldier. He wore a turban of grey-white material, and his body was draped in the same filmy stuff. His shoulders were broad and well-shaped, and his head and face clearly defined. His nose and chin were firm and manly, but I could not discern his eyes. 
His knees did not show, and although his drapery did not touch the floor, he had no perceptible feet. He gave the impression of a form suspended, unfinished, in the air and yet with bulk. Whether the psychic commanded him to greet me or not, I cannot now recall. But the phantom, as if to show that he was alive, bowed to me three times gracefully, slowly, and solemnly, while the psychic with both hands outstretched and with bent trembling legs crept slowly toward the figure. At the same time, the phantom moved toward the psychic as if drawn by some magnetic force. They met in the center and appeared to coalesce like two drops of mercury. The figure vanished seemingly into the body of the psychic who reeled backward through the curtains and fell like a log on the floor. The portiers resumed their position, but one of his feet projecting from beneath the drapery gave evidence for some minutes of his prostration. None of the family seemed disturbed. The wife at the piano played softly one of her husband's favorite tunes, and a few minutes later he reappeared outside the curtains looking pale, weary, and bewildered but quite normal in speech and manner. This experience standing alone has little value, but coming after my many experiments with ectoplasmic hands and arms, I considered it worth recording along with this testimony. He said, I held the form just as long as I could in order that you might study it. I held it till my legs felt hollow. I could feel the force go out from my forehead and from my solar plexus, and then I collapsed. Mrs. Peters did not consider it an especially notable exhibition. We often have much more powerful manifestations. One night, a huge figure almost naked, a tremendous athlete came out through the portieres holding Daniel like a baby on his uplifted palms. Sometimes the voices which come shake the walls. As I sat listening to these incredible tales, I could hear the katydids snoring outside in the trees. The little girl was still sitting in bored silence at the open window. That they all believed in their phantasmal visitors and considered them celestial in origin was evident. The doubter will say, it was all a skillful arrangement of sheets and wires, and I could not prove it otherwise. Although at the moment I believed in the honesty of the psychic. After all, it was in harmony with the reports of Crooks and Roche. Peters walked down to the station with me, subdued and rather silent. I said to him, I believe in you, but that phantasmal visitor was not wholly convincing. I cannot make report of this evening's work as I shall do with your sittings at Turner's. I would like your cooperation in a series of thoroughly scientific electrical and mechanical tests. Would you consider such a series? After a moment's thought, he gravely replied, Yes, I'll go into such a series of experiments provided you will take out a $10,000 policy on my life in favor of my wife. That is only fair, I agreed. I will take the matter up with Cosgrave tomorrow. On the following day, I reported this talk to Cosgrave and his editors. I believe in this man, but we must consider the dangers in such a trial. He is very frail. He might at any moment expire under test. Can't you imagine the newspaper headline? Psychic expires under Garland's hands. I'm not inclined to take the risk. Cosgrave concurred with me and wrote to Peter saying, We have decided not to make the experiment. Thus ended my experience with the singular and amazing person. I never saw him again. A year or two later, when in the city, I tried to get in touch with him, but failed. I could not find him in the telephone list, nor in the city directory. Letters sent to his old address came back to me. Whether he had returned to a southern home or had died under trance, I never knew. Chapter 12 The Hidden Universe One of the commonest observations made to me, and one usually spoken with a sigh, is this. Nothing mysterious ever happens where I am. To most men and women, the earth is a good, dependable, but rather commonplace old ball. They find the soil firm under their feet. Clouds gather over their heads and rains fall. Men walk behind their plows or wield hammers in their shops while the women go about their household duties with no sense of the hidden forces at work around them. 
Reporters and editors busied with news are liable to the same misconception even in the midst of an incessant clamor of accidents and crimes. Whatever is habitual is true, but dull. Murder, robbery, divorce are all in the day's work. Mankind is like that, they say. But stories of haunted houses, poltergeists, and phantasms of the living are different matters altogether. They simply don't happen. I will not say that the editors of Everybody's Magazine doubted the existence of the hidden world, but I am quite certain that they were amazed by the mass of letters and detailed reports of inexplicable happenings which fell upon their desks as a result of my serial, The Shadow World. Many of these manuscripts were addressed to me, but as it was impossible for me to read even a tenth part of them, I asked that they be turned over to subordinates for classification. The most important fact about these letters, said Cosgrave, is their agreement on all essential points. They show that a perception of the occult world is more general than any of us had suspected. The most illogical of these happenings are reported from opposite ends of the earth. One story confirms another. It is an astounding revelation of hidden forces. I'd like you to give thought to the best way in which to make use of this material. In a conference with Baker and Hall, I suggested that it would be amusing to offer a prize for the best authenticated report of a metaphysical or metapsychical happening, and Cosgrave named me as the final judge to whom the best of the story should be referred. The announcement of this competition was followed by another astounding wave of correspondence. Bulky manuscripts began to arrive, each one accompanied by sheaves of affidavits from local authorities, all vouching for the story or certifying to the reliability of the writer. How can we authenticate the authenticators, I asked when the stories were turned over to me. With true editorial craft, Cosgrave replied, it is not necessary that we enter a court of law to prove that affidavits are fraudulent. After all, our job is to hold the interest of our readers in this subject for a few months longer. I have on my desk the original copy of the call for these tales, and some of the manuscripts just as they went to the printer, and as I read them now in the light of my later experience, I do not find them impossible of credence. One of my reports is headed, The Poltergeist, and reads as follows. At the bottom of every tradition there is a kernel of truth. The almost universal belief in ghosts from the earliest times to the present would seem to indicate that there is a real basis for such a belief. As Rocher says, tradition on the whole has not been deceived. The occult world exists. At the risk of being looked upon by my contemporaries as a fool, I believe that phantoms exist, and that they are the basis of the belief in ghosts. Commenting on this, I went on to say, I have never seen a ghost, but if there is any value in human testimony, there are times and places when phantoms and human shapes have veritably manifested themselves with startling vividness. Men and women of all ages and all countries attest this. The mass of evidence in support of ghosts is enormous. These uneasy spirits wandering dim halls, dragging clanking chains, uttering groans of agony, these invisible beings with echoing footsteps at midnight, all seem to be connected with murder, robbery, or some other act of violence. Some of the phantoms are evildoers, some are the victims, but always they are connected with injustice. One of the ghost stories sent in to us was so circumstantial in detail and so natural, even in its mysteries, that I put it high on the list of eligibles for the prize. It was written by a Chicago newspaper woman whom I had met and whose reputation for accurate reporting was excellent. Her story told of a haunted house in which she had lived for several years, and after recording the usual details of doors mysteriously opening and shutting, bells ringing and the like, she wrote, the ghost in this case was the former owner and occupant of the place, who always appeared in a seedy Prince Albert frock coat while in the sitting room, but when seen in the basement or kitchen dressed like a working man. He came and went so often that we accepted him as an occupant. We merely said, there's old Lane again, and turned to our reading. The particular event which interested me was reported to Mrs. Ford by her housekeeper, a middle-aged woman who slept in an upper story of the house. 
Her first duty of the morning was to go down to the basement, shut the furnace door, and open its drafts. One very cold morning, as she lay dreading the task, so she stated, I thought of our ghost. I said, Old Lane, if you were any use in the world, you'd shut that furnace door for me. No sooner had I spoken when bang went the furnace door, and in a few minutes I could see the warm air coming up. Did you ever hear before of a ghost doing a useful deed like that? Asked the writer of the article. I never did, and it was this kindly practical action on the part of the ghost with several others equally natural which gave Mrs. Ford's story its most unusual character. We often saw him on the stairs, she went on to relate, or in the kitchen always wearing a velvet skull cap and brown corduroy jacket and shabby trousers, the costume as we afterward learned which he had habitually worn in the house, but when we saw him in the drawing room he wore a black suit with frock coat. In short, as a ghost he was governed by a sense of propriety as one in the flesh, a most remarkable ghost. Mrs. Ford's explanation involved the mediumistic power of her housekeeper. We came to feel that Mr. Lane was a beneficent presence always ready for a kindly response to any demand within his power. He seemed to prefer the basement and kitchen which he seemed always inspecting. This story interested and amused us all, but the manuscript which won first prize was the vivid account of a series of rather horrifying events in a circle of psychic experimenters in Nashville, Tennessee. The reporter in this case was Ida K. Reno well-known in the city, who stated that their sittings were wholly private with no professional medium present. Her report, accompanied by voluntary affidavits from several distinguished citizens, reached a most startling climax. She stated that after a large number of sittings, a beast of unknown sort made itself heard and felt beneath the table around which she and her friends were sitting. I have not the manuscript at hand and can only write of it from memory, but one of the chief events remains in my mind. Mrs. Reno went on to say that a well-known lawyer in the town not only scoffed at their reports, but truculently said, Let me come into your circle. I defy any phantasmal beast to manifest in my presence. He went, and in the midst of the seance, a dark seance, someone called out, There is a huge cat under the table. I feel its paw on my knee. Another said, It is not a cat, it is a dog. I felt it brush against my legs. With a snort of derision, the lawyer skeptic replied, I'm going to prove that there's neither cat nor dog under the table. Getting down on the floor, he began to feel about with his hand. Suddenly, with a yell, he scrambled to his feet, caught up his hat, and rushed from the house. On the following day, he explained his panic. A huge hairy beast hurled itself against me, a brute of enormous power. It followed me all the way home. Some months later, while lunching with Judge John M. Dixon of Nashville, I mentioned Mrs. Reno and told this story. He said, I knew that group, and I know the lawyer who fought the Phantom. He confessed that he'd been chased to his home by the beast. Up to this date, I had received no well-authenticated stories of the materializations of animals, but one came in from New Orleans. A woman asserted that she had held in her lap during a seance the materialized form of a favorite cat. Later reports from Paris described the photographing of strange animal forms during certain test circles of experts. A great bird was photographed with outstanding wings, sitting on the head of a psychic. These stories of animal phantasms gave me a great deal of thought. If a cat or dog can be materialized in a seance, I said to Cosgrave, then any bird or animal can be materialized. Such thought forms invalidate the theory of immortality. If a favorite cat can be thus recreated, then a pet canary, a horse, or any creature definitely thought upon and wished for may be brought into the circle. Our third prize went to a story in which an officer of a steamship related his experience with a phantasmal messenger. This story, which I must also quote from memory, was substantially as follows. While on his way to Japan, and with his ship about 300 miles from Seattle, this captain late at night had occasion to go to his office for a paper of some sort. As I entered the door, I was amazed to find a man seated at my desk. He was writing and seemed not aware of me. I saw him plainly. 
He was a powerful figure in uniform, evidently first mate of a ship. As I stepped toward him, he vanished, and I thought of him as a vivid hallucination till I reached my desk and found their words plainly written. We are in distress. Steer northeast 100 miles. Hurry, we are sinking. This vision so wrought upon me that I turned from our course and steered northeast as requested. After sailing for several hours, we came in sight of a vessel in distress, and on boarding her I was met by the man of my vision, his exact double. My recollection is that the officer of the disabled vessel assured the captain that he had no consciousness of being a phantasmal messenger, but that he had gone to sleep while greatly troubled about the fate of his ship. While mentally seeking for help, he was wholly unaware of being in the other man's stateroom. In this case, the ghost was the phantasm of a living man. There are many other stories which seem to prove that phantasms of the living are possible. I have never witnessed such a phenomenon, but cases are reported where the psychic seems able to leave his body and visit distant chambers, describing what he sees there. But when an officer of a vessel visits another one a hundred miles away and writes a warning, remaining unconscious of the act, we have an entirely different problem. The most unusual character of this manuscript gave it high place. These authenticated tales prove that hundreds of thousands of the readers of my serial believed in an occult world and were prepared to testify to personal experiences which revealed it. However, to these people, to most people, the birth of a chick, the change of a tadpole into a frog were commonplace everyday events. Only when a hammer moved by itself or a cannonball fell from the ceiling did they begin to marvel at the mysteries which make up life. Many of the wonder tales which came in related the absurd antics of poltergeists. One long report from Virginia, authenticated by the village priest, the local doctor, and the justice of the peace was so mad, so illogical in its sequences that no one could imagine them. Showers of nails and rusty bolts dropped upon two young girls in their beds. A cannonball fell from the ceiling upon the stairs and remained there. Tools and horseshoes taken from a distant blacksmith shop hung themselves on nails in the kitchen, and many other equally absurd tricks were played. Another story equally fantastic came from a Colorado ranch where in the flash of an eye a dinner cloth fully covered with dishes and food was swept from the table out into the yard. The cloth was found later wound deep in a churn filled with buttermilk. Stones fell from the ceiling and dishes flew about like a flock of scared hens. In the annals of psychical science many such tales were recounted and Lombroso the alienist was sent out to investigate. He saw the pranks played but could give no explanation of them. As I read his report, I began to wonder whether ancient stories of witches, kobolds, leprechauns, and fairies may not have sprung from some such mediumistic pranks as these manuscripts reported. With the awarding of those prizes, the editors of Everybody's closed the pages of the magazine to any further psychic discussion. This was a wise decision, but I for one secretly regretted the close of an intensely interesting review of the hidden world. It had been a revelation of the universe of wonder which lies beneath the humdrum sod of ordinary life as the land of she underlies the bogs and fields of Ireland. You've been listening to Classic Paranormal's reading of 40 Years of Psychic Research by Hamelin Garland. This was the fourth installment. Be sure to click into the succeeding episodes until the book is complete. Until then, followers of the freaky, aficionados of the afterworldly, connoisseurs of the creepy, stay spooky. Stay spooky.